Welcome to My Rules Are Better podcast, I'm Tom Barbelay. Today I'm going to do a little recording, a short recording, because the guests and the format that this podcast has taken, I actually quite like it, you know? Maybe on the uh, box of cereal as you originally bought it, it would have said something different, but this podcast seems to be capturing a lot of interesting elements, which I don't really have a problem putting out in podcast form. So, for folks listening in wondering where the rules are... I'm going to devote this recording to an idea that I've been having. But also I'm going to provide an update on various things. The lead pile, mm, it's basically stagnated. I got out some miniatures recently to a listener in Northern Ireland, but since then, no miniatures have been sent. And associated with the painting of miniatures, there's also been a bit of a stagnation with that as well. So I've got kind of boxes here ready to send and haven't really received many back. I did receive two portions of greenskins back recently, which was nice. But the main bulk of the miniatures, including the Chechen figures, are still out with the painters, and they haven't actually had any paint put on them yet. So I don't really know what to say about that. For today's recording, I'm going to be talking about cards, because I feel that the podcast has kind of lacked a discussion of cards, and it's something that obviously from recent guests, people are interested in. Now, Obviously, with my background, don't have a lot of card game close to me. So I thought, well, let me experiment with writing a card game rules system. Pack of playing cards divided by color suits and, well, just colors, not suits specifically. So 26 cards, a player. And the introduction has a number of possibilities. There's the possibility that each player randomly selects six cards from the other player as a means of breaking up the potential and changing the strategies a little bit. But once they have their cards selected, it's a facing against one another. The play is, how would one describe it? Interstitial, I think, is the way. So the first player plays a card, the second player plays a card against it, then the second player plays a card, the first player plays a card against that. I did it at eight card spreads initially, just because that seemed to be an easy way of resolving the combat. Once the cards are facing each other, 2 through to 10 is the number, and uh, jack through to ace is 11, 12, 13, 14, respectively. Now, the rules that I have initially, I'll give the rules that I have initially, and I'll give one description against these rules as well. The rules are for numbered cards, i.e. not face cards, including the ace. You roll 2d6, and you add it to the card value. For the face cards, including the ace, you roll 1d6 and add it to the card's value. And then the person with the higher result gets to keep their card in play, whereas the other card is discarded in a card pile, which I divided by colour suits just to make it easier. So once that has gone through the line a few times, you end up with a situation where typically only the higher cards will be being held. Now a variation of this, which I am considering strongly, is that the ace actually doesn't roll a dice at all. The ace just represents 14. And that is a very interesting playstyle because it means the ace can be a, a wild card in certain circumstances, but also that it doesn't have the highest possible value in the deck. So this is an interesting game to even play against oneself. In fact, I've done most of the playtesting playing against myself, which is what I advocate for in playtesting. And it's quite an interesting game as it plays out. I'm not going to talk at all about strategy here. But I think there are certain strategies, particularly around 8, 9, 10, the cards 8, 9, 10, which I will just put out there for folks 
interested in listening in. But I play this typically for, you know, maybe five or six games an evening to see the various rules play out. And it seems to play quite reasonably. I'm not clear how it would play against an opponent. I'm not clear if the strategies that the opponent will pick up versus the strategies that, you know, the the player, the non-opponent player, I guess they're both opponents in some regard. In any case, the strategies associated with this game, I think, make it particularly interesting. And at the end, uh, if you just have one card left versus, you know, a multiple set of cards in your opponents, your one card is played against the opponent's cards, uh, continuing on until the person has no cards left. I think it's an interesting game. It certainly is a card game with strategy elements in it. I don't have a name for it yet. I probably should give it a name, shouldn't I? I don't know. Why don't we call it My Rules of Better Card Game 1? That's very original. It's like I'm some kind of tank manufacturer or something. Anyway, so My Rules of Better Card Game 1 plays out as follows. So two people opposing one another. Could be interesting actually in four players as well, but let's just say two people opposing one another. One with all the red cards, one with all the black cards. And playing the cards out initially, so you see in eight hands, four each. Um, well, four each with them starting, but you could probably do four in a row and then four in a row. But I think the, you know, I go, you go element actually works quite well. So that is a game that I want to put out there. And for the folks who, you know, for the, for the father-son-daughter, mother-son-daughter teams, try it out. See what happens. Playing cards are pretty universal. Dice are pretty universal. So you probably have the two required things to participate. And if you have any questions about the rules, I appreciate. So anyway, let me describe the rules again, just in case you haven't got initially. Two possibilities, either all the uh, reds and blacks divided or say, you know, clubs versus hearts or something like that, doing it down. I think when you're playing with 13 versus 26, 26 is an ideal number. And the ability to do the six-card pick at the start mixes things up quite a bit as well. So I think 26 plays better than 13. I'm just going to put that out there. First player starts, second player follows, then second player starts, first player follows, down eight. This is arbitrary. You could do it 10, you could do it 13. You could do it four. I had started initially with four. This is kind of slow with four. The actual mechanic of putting the cards down you want to get that done as quickly as possible and then do the roll-offs. And the roll-offs, you've got to obviously have the math in your head, but it gets pretty easy after a certain period of time. And, you know, you can roll dice together or one could go, the other one could go. It doesn't really matter. The dice rolls are not in any way impactful if they're rolled at the same time or one rolls and the other one rolls. So then through this process, you end up with winners, losers, and draws. Draws are acceptable. So in the draw case, both cards stay. You might want to play house rules where both cards are removed. That would make it more interesting, slightly more cutthroat. But in the draw case, both cards stay in the way that I'm playing it. And the player always has the option which card they play against an opponent's card if they start first. If they don't start first, then obviously the opponent has the ability to counter their card play. And when you get down to one card, it's also interesting associated with the I go, you go mechanic, because obviously you kind of lose that. But that's part of the thing associated with getting to a reduced card set. You want to try and hold your card so at least you can have some choice through the matter versus just playing out. And what I found typically when I played this game is the playouts are usually against some kind of face card or a 10 or a 9, typically. That's the way it ends. And the ace rule associated with the ace not actually getting a dice, play that one out too. See how that works out in your play. So 
I wanted to put out a card game. I'm not really going to editorialize too much about it other than just give the rules out there. And the beauty of the discard pile is you didn't just pick up the discard pile when you want to play again because you've already got them divided and you can organize them accordingly. It's actually quite interesting looking at the discard pile and getting a sense of what cards have lost and in what order. And obviously, if you're holding two full hands, I mean, obviously, you've got some manipulation with the six swap. But if you're holding two full card hands, when you play those twos, threes, fours, fives, you know, obviously, if they're putting up something big initially, you might want to discard those cards early. But there are some dynamics, right? If you're rolling 2d6, there's a circumstance where you'd roll 12s, right? Then those cards are in the game. So you've got to start weighing this thing early on in the gameplay just to get a sense of which way you're going to go with regards to the low number cards. I mean, they're almost like kind of kamikaze cards, really, in terms of their effect on the game. What I found really interesting was that I had, after playing, there were still some twos and threes in some occasions that had just survived through high dice rolls. So they're not underpowered with the 2d6. Anyway, things to keep in mind. I have a large number of Second World War miniatures. In fact, a large number that are currently in this painting limbo. One of the things that I've been considering through this period of time is the potential to start playing bolt action. I dabbled early on with Flames of War just to associate with it, but the scale doesn't really do anything for me. I'm a 28mm person, let's just say that. So the bolt action has so many different figure possibilities. Obviously, you've got the, the games company themselves providing miniatures, but so many other companies make 28mm World War II miniatures, and I've got a good number of them. So... I was thinking, mm, this is an interesting thing. I've got a lot of partisan figures. So to get the partisans painted and play partisans versus Germans for a wide variety of different sides. I've got a bunch of British, some American. I've got absolutely no Russian, I think. I'm pretty sure I have no Russian. It's ironic because the Chechen stuff, I've got Russians. But for World War II, no Russians. Hmm. I guess the partisans always play as Russians in my mind. Although, obviously, there were French partisans and, you know, Western European partisans. But... I can certainly play my partisans as Russians. The beauty of Bolt Action is that there's a wide variety of YouTube videos online. In fact, there are many hours of gameplay, many really interesting games, including, obviously, the, the creators themselves producing videos online, usually through third-party sites. But, you know, the, the rules creators are there. But, yeah, it's interesting to me to think that they've really worked against a lot of the discussion that I had recently with Barney and, uh, you know, to a lesser extent I've talked about in this podcast, associated with the Warhammer I Go You Go mechanic. You select dice at random from a sack in order to determine unit by unit which unit goes. And I think that dynamic is very interesting in terms of how it impacts the gameplay. And also, it's a circumstance where I don't think it's a historical simulation. I think the elements of the second world war that really fascinate me is the role of veteran soldiers and the role of green soldiers kind of coming together veteran soldiers by the end of the war many of them had you know five plus years worth of experience and how does that actually correlate to a war game the overwhelming numbers that were involved in terms of kind of coming in from both sides towards the end with the german forces can't be really accurately represented in these war games. The nature of the extreme loss and the effect of the psychology. You see, a veteran soldier is viewed in most wargaming scenarios as being a hardened soldier that actually fights better. But a lot of the accounts that I'm reading of these veteran soldiers is by the last two years of the war, they were completely burnt out. It was, the, in fact, the antithesis that they 
had moved beyond standard shell shock into an environment, and starvation as well obviously played a factor, where their psychologies were not, can't be accurately represented in a standard linear gameplay. And what I see in these games is, particularly with regards to the Germans, that if they're viewed as like the Germans and the Americans, basically off the boats together, fresh and ready to fight, you know, those games play out far too often through bolt action. The nature of the psychology of the individual fighters over the Second World War doesn't seem to be accurately represented. I mean, there's a long-standing discussion associated with the role that submachine guns and machine guns, machine guns in particular, play through bolt action and how in the first version of the rules they weren't powerful enough just because realistically in these battles you have a machine gun and you can eliminate basically half a force of like a standard, a standard bolt action force. Basically, you'd lose half of it. You'd be down to the armor and a few lucky stragglers against a machine gun. I mean, that's the way they operated in, in real terms. So having a war game where the machine gun is operating like that, not particularly fun, right? Game over, and one machine gun pops up and, you know, devastates your entire force. So it's interesting seeing these games as being not even realistic simulations, just actually something where there's an element of fun which is separate from the nature of the conflict. And also I find, because I'm reading a lot currently, when I'm saying I'm reading a lot, I'm, I'm consuming audiobooks from predominantly German soldiers' experience, particularly on the Eastern Front, but also through the on both sides, the pincer movement that occurred as 1944, 1945. What happened there? And it's interesting, actually, when you hear accounts of being overrun by tanks, and just the experience of what it's like to see, you know, your comrades getting squished, basically, in front of you. And intentionally, just really direct, kind of tit-for-tat combat, which is not really represented at all. I mean, Saving Private Ryan is a film that I now even wouldn't rate. It's interesting, I watched it about a, a week ago. I thought to myself, this is just a caricature. I mean, it's true, the Americans, through the that main battle sequence are up against a SS regiment, and the SS were particularly heavily represented towards the end of the war because they were the ones that were there. Other participants were moving back, but the SS was still thrown into this thing. But the caricature of the Germans in that film is very strange, and it really is a very curious account. I have a similar feeling with regards to Band of Brothers. Band of Brothers at least has a bit more humanity in it, but still, American war movies have always felt a little tarnished to me. In contrast to Das Boot, which I would recommend to anyone, I think Das Boot is probably the best Second World War film ever made. Downfall, The Last Ten Days of Adolf Hitler, which is the Alec Innes as Hitler version. I thought the Alec Innes as Hitler version, Last Ten Days of Adolf Hitler, I think that's what it's called, is really interesting because it is satire in a really surreal setting. Downfall doesn't have some of the nuances that The Last Ten Days of Adolf Hitler has. The Last Ten Days got a thumbs up from Hugh Trevor Roper, who, I don't know, I, I find Hugh Trevor Roper just a fascinating character. I also, I physically hold these books in front of me as I'm talking about it. I also have the Russian account, Bezmensky, perhaps? The Death of Adolf Hitler. These books contain bits of information that are not contained anywhere else. It's very strange, neither of these books... Well, actually, one is represented in audio form. You can get the Hugh Trevor Roper, Last Days of Adolf Hitler. 
But yeah, the film takes some liberties, which is actually really interesting. The account of the last few minutes of Hitler's life through the film, The Last Ten Days of Hitler, fascinating. And insights that aren't in the book, so I'm not sure whether this is the license part, but the account of Hitler is just going on these strange monologues for many hours seems to be historically accurate and not represented in any way in Downfall. Although Downfall is a contemporary film. Well, contemporary in the past 10 years, can't be sniffed at. But that's but a good one, I think. There are lots of really interesting films coming out currently about the Second World War, slowly but surely. Interesting interpretations. The Captain, which is a really strange contemporary generation, almost a millennial account of the Second World War. I would recommend just purely as an indication of this is a new interpretation of the Second World War from Germans in Germany. There are a bunch of what I would call Eastern European accounts of the Second World War, 1944, uh, a few other films uh, that are interesting. I mean, certainly, look, Son of Sol, I think, is a brilliant film, but not specifically associated with the conflict, more associated with the Sonderkommandos, who were the concentration camp conscriptees, I guess you'd call them. So, yeah, there are a bunch of interesting films within the Second World War genre, but I think the first-hand accounts, the first-hand narrative accounts, having them presented to me in contrast to watching these bolt-action games play out on YouTube. Very strange juxtaposition of, you know, one cat hearing the human account of being overrun by tanks, and another cat having two rather jovial, you know, Irish gentlemen moving these things together and rolling dice. One of the rare times that I've thought about the morality of this wargaming thing, particularly, you know, I have one painter, who has talked about the morality of this wargaming thing. But unfortunately, he sent me a box of broken miniatures recently, which I sent back to him. So let's see. Watch this space about whether he continues to be a painter of mine. Anyway, I think I've given you your money's worth today. Sozio with my rules are better. If you want to participate, if you want to get involved, barbele at gmail.com. Bravo, Alpha Romeo. Bravo, Alpha Lima, Echo Tango. Please send me an email. As you've heard recently, Barney got in this very podcast. Listener, found the podcast, contacted me, appeared on the podcast. That is the blueprint. If you have stuff that you want to talk about, any ideas you want to put out there, if you want to criticize my first card game rules, or whatever we're going to call it, by all means do. But I like the opportunity to chat with people, and certainly the conversation with Barney was absolutely wonderful. My understanding is, perhaps that Matthew Gibson will be getting back on this very podcast. He is currently travelling. He may be returning soon. Similarly, Chris Abbott has also, for work-related issues and other ver variety of things, I am going to talk to Chris at some stage associated with what I do with this Chechen thing. But as the figures remain in limbo, eh, I've got other things to think about currently. Thank you very much for tuning into My Rules of Better. Please, if you can spend a minute, review us on iTunes, if you can. Or alternatively, send a link to your friends. If you're on Twitter or other social media, let people know about what we're doing here, with the view that this will get more listeners and probably, hopefully, get more interesting content. Tom Bartley in the San Francisco Bay Area, signing out.